Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Well, shalom, everybody. Let's try that once, one more time, okay? You got to do better than that. Shalom, everybody. Shalom. It is such a great privilege and an honor to be here and uh, to share with you. And um, unfortunately, I haven't met uh, Pastor Scott yet, but uh, I want to I wanna thank him anyway. And uh, Tyler as well, thank you so much for your warm welcome. And um, it is a, a great joy and an honor and a privilege to be here with you all and to share with you. And like Tyler mentioned, um, I am indeed from Israel. That's where I live. That's where my home is. And I was born and raised in a typical Israeli secular home. Um, and my parents are, um, they're Jewish, but like most Jewish people, they are atheists. Most Jews in the world are either atheists or agnostics, and that was my parents. So um, even though my parents, um, growing up in their home, they always communicated to my brother and I that men created God and not vice versa, even as a small child, I never really bought into their atheism, and I always believed in God, but didn't really know what to do with my faith in God. And uh, then when I was in the middle of ninth grade, my dad's job moved us from, um, from Israel to New York, so I graduated from high school and university in New York, and in university, I was studying math, and as a math student, I, um, I got a job tutoring students who needed extra help in math. And one day, I was helping this girl with her math homework, and she recognized my accent in English, and so she asked me if I was Russian. <laughs> and I said to her, no, I'm not Russian, I'm Israeli. And she said, oh, wow, that's wonderful, I'm also Jewish. So we had something in common, so we continued in the conversation. And um, I remember that at some point, she tells me that she believes in Yeshua, now, being fluent in Hebrew, I knew what the word Yeshua means. Yeshua means salvation in Hebrew, but I've never heard of such a name. So I asked this girl, who is this Yeshua that she believes in? And she told me that it was Jesus. And I was shocked for two reasons. Number one, I was shocked to find out that Jesus' real Hebrew name is salvation, Yeshua. And second of all, I've never met a Jewish person who believed in Jesus before. So I was really surprised to meet somebody, a Jew for Jesus. So I was curious and I wanted to know more. And a few days later, we met for lunch. And it was during that lunch that she opened the Old Testament scriptures to me and showed me how uh, we have the um, prophecies about the Messiah. And then she showed me in the New Testament how Jesus, how Yeshua fulfilled each and every one of those prophecies. And praise God, a few days later, I prayed with her to receive the Lord. And two years later, we got married. So <laughs> praise God for that as well. And then um, you know, as the leader of Jews for Jesus in Israel, Jews for Jesus we exist to relentlessly pursue God's plan for the salvation of Israel. That is our mission plan. We want to reach Jewish people. We want to share with them God's plan of salvation through Messiah Jesus. And you know, there are Jewish people all over the world, of course, all over the United States. And Jews for Jesus, we're an international ministry with branches all over the place. But you know, our largest work today is actually in Israel. 
I have the privilege of leading 34 staff members um, out of Tel Aviv in Israel. And um, you may wonder, so why is your largest branch um, in Israel? Well, it makes sense because Israel is the most Jewish country in the world. Today in Israel, there are 6.4 million Jewish people who live in Israel. 6.4 million Jews live in Israel. But only about 5,000 Jewish people believe in Jesus in Israel today. 5,000 Jewish people out of 6.4 million Jewish people. Our people in the land of Israel today are unreached with the gospel. And that's why Jews for Jesus, that's why our largest branch and our largest effort today is to reach the most unreached Jewish population in the world today, which is in the state of Israel. And I want to play for you right now a short video clip that kind of describes and tells you what it is that we do in Israel. So let's play that right now. Shalom, my name is Dan Sered and I'm the Israel Director of Jews for Jesus. Jews for Jesus is a ministry that relentlessly pursues God's plan for salvation for Israel. Founded in 1973 in San Francisco, California, as a part of the Jesus Movement, where many hippies came to faith in Jesus, and many of those hippies were Jewish people. So they came around our founder, another Jewish believer in Jesus, Moish Rosen, and they started this movement of Jews for Jesus wanting to communicate the gospel to our Jewish people. Israel is a complex place. Israel is a melting pot. And so many different people from different places. So our Jews for Jesus Israel ministry reflects that diversity. We have a staff that are devoted to children, youth, and young adult ministry. We have staff that are devoted to the Russian-speaking population in Israel, to the, the, the general Hebrew-speaking seculars, to social media evangelism. But at the end of it, for us, it's all about making disciples, fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples for our Lord Jesus. We engage Jewish people with the Gospel message. We equip them to follow Yeshua, and we inspire Christians to do the same. Yeah, that's what our um, mission is all about. That's what um, we strive to do, making disciples for our Lord Jesus. And I know that that's your heart as well. And that's why it's my a privilege to be here and to share with you that burden, hoping, praying that you would join us. And, and this morning, there are three ways of how you could partner with our ministry as we reach out um, the Jewish people in the land of Israel today. And the first and most important way of how you could partner with our ministry this morning is through your prayers. We desperately need God's people to be praying for us. Prayer is the secret weapon of evangelism, and we just don't pray enough as part of our gospel ministry and as part of our evangelistic effort. So would you consider to become a prayer partner of our ministry? Inside your bulletins, you will find an envelope that says on a Jews for Jesus. Would you please take it out right now? And if you open up the flap, there's a place here for you to place your name and address. If you do that, I would love to send you our Jews for Jesus free monthly newsletter, um, which has an 
needed, of course, prayer requests so that you would know how to pray for our ministry. Also, there is a place here for your email address. If you fill out your email address, I would love to send you our monthly prayer updates that I write and send from Israel, again, so that you would know how to effectively pray for our ministry. Now, anybody who fills out their name and address this morning, I would like to bless you with a free gift from Jews for Jesus. And it's a book that we would send to you from our headquarters in San Francisco that I know will bless you. It will teach you more about um, the feasts of the Lord and how Jesus celebrated them and fulfilled them, okay? So if you fill out your name and address, we'd love to send you that free book, but also would love to have you as a partner, as a prayer partner with our ministry as we bring the gospel to Jewish people. Now, secondly, you can partner with our ministry um, this morning by giving financially in the offering. And I'm going to ask that all the gifts that you want to go to our ministry in Israel that you would place in this wide envelope, um, you can give via checks, make checks payable to Jews for Jesus. Also, if you'd like to give uh, with the credit card, you can put that information again on, that, um, on, on this envelope and just drop it. Um, in the offering. The offering in its entirety um, this morning, the offering to Jews for Jesus, is going to go to bless Israel. Today you have the opportunity of bringing the gospel to the unreached people in Israel. Now, third and finally, you could partner with our ministry this morning by visiting my resource table just outside the sanctuary. Now, on my resource table, I've got two sections. There is a free section and not-so-free section. In the free section, and I've got different brochures, but I want to point you to this. This is a prayer card for my family and I. Would you please take one of these? And then um, you can either put it on your, in your Bible or on your refrigerator, whichever one you open more often. <laughs> and <laughs> this, this serves... <laughs> I hope that this could serve as a prayer reminder, okay? Would you remember to pray for my family and I? On the not-so-free section, I've got different things. I've got some uh, books. Um, but I also noticed that you guys love to worship the Lord, amen? And I really enjoyed worship um, this morning. And I've got some um, Jewish gospel worship music for all of you. Um, now, do you guys know Jewish music? Have you guys ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? You know, kind of Jewish music. Well, this Jewish music praises Jesus. And in case you didn't know, this is the type of music we're all going to be praising Jesus with in eternity. Okay? <laughs> it's going to be Jewish music, okay? And I want you to be prepared, you know, so you can check that out. Hey, seriously speaking, would you please consider to become a prayer partner for our ministry? We need your prayer. So please, even if you choose not to give in the offering, that's fine. Just fill out your name and address, get that free book, but also become a prayer partner of our ministry. We need God's people to be praying for us. Okay, so um, this morning, um, as I've been kind of praying and thinking about what to share with you, today I want us to talk about the preeminence of God. So, what does the Bible say about the preeminence of God? If you got your Bibles, would you please take out your Bibles and um, either open your Bible or turn on your Bible, whatever, to Exodus chapter 3. 
And as you do that, let me give us a little bit of background, okay? In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is 80 years old, and he was put in the desert tending Jethro's sheep out in the backside of the desert. And then one day he's walking along and he passes this bush, and this bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. So Moses is kind of curious by this phenomenon, so he goes over to check it out, and God speaks to him from the bush. Remember? Here we go. Um, Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 to 10. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay. So far, so good. Um, Moses got his marching order. Um, But Moses responds to God. So let's see what Moses says, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, you need to understand that in that culture at that time, a name was more than just a reference to a person. A name was supposed to indicate the character of that person. That's why, for example, they named Jacob Supplanter because you know what he did to his brother, right? This was a very appropriate name for Jacob. Well, when Moses asks God, what is your name?, He's not asking God, you know, God, what is this nice term that they refer to you by? But Moses is actually asking God, God, what is your character? God, who are you really? God, what are you really like? And then we have verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, here in saying that I am, what is God saying about himself? And and to really understand this verb I am, we got to go to the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, that word is ehiyeh. It's translated in our English Bibles as I am, but literally it means to have existence. To have existence. So what is God saying to Moses? He's saying, Moses, I am the being in the universe who has existence in and of himself. I am the being in this universe who exists and has life in me, in and of myself. Here in Exodus chapter 3, God 
presents himself as the one and only self-existent, independent being in the entire universe. And you know, the rest of the Bible echoes the same truth. Let me show you a few examples. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Which is why we have Revelations chapter 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Which is why 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality. You know, when I was a younger, a younger father, and I'm... A long time ago, I know I'm quite old now. And my second son, Eitan, he was, he was just a little boy, and maybe four years old. And I remember that, um, that one day he came to me, and he said to me, he said, Abba, and Dad, he says, um, you know, where did the trees come from? And I remember I thought to myself, wow, that's a great question. And hey, I've got an answer to that question. So I kind of felt good about myself. And, and, and I said to him, oh, great question, son. Um, well, um, God made the trees. Trees came from God. And he said, well, where did the stars come from? And again, I felt really good about myself because I had an answer to that, right? And, and I said to him, Eitan, God made the stars as well. And you know how kids do, right? He went on and on and on with these questions. And, and I had an answer to every single one of these questions. You know, God made them. They, they came from God. God made them. God made them. And then all of a sudden, he says to me, he goes, Oh, okay, Abba, well, where does God come from? <laughs> well, all of a sudden, I'm out of answers. There is no answer to that question. So I said, I said, Eitan, God doesn't come from anywhere. God is, and he has always has been, and he always will be. Now, Eitan found that really hard to grasp and to understand, but trust me, not nearly as hard as I find that to grasp as an adult, because saying that makes me realize And it makes you realize that we are dealing here with a being that is preeminent above any other being in the entire cosmos. So, this is God, the one and only independent, unbounded, preeminent being in the universe. God is accountable to no one but himself. God is responsible to no one but himself. God is limited by no one but himself. God is restrained but by no one but himself. And God is, no, is answerable to no one but himself. He is the I am of the universe. He's the eternally self-existing one beyond whom we cannot think and beyond whom there is nothing to think about anyway. He is God, preeminent in the universe. 
Now, this is as far as I want us to go this morning um, in our kind of theological treatment of this, because now it's time for us to ask a very important question, maybe the most important question for the day. And that question is, so what? Who cares? I mean, this is all great. I'm sure you knew this about God even before you walked into church this morning. But, but really, what difference does any of this make to our life today, living here in Washington in the 21st century? What difference does this make to us tomorrow morning when, when we go to school or, or to work? Well, let's talk about it, okay? Let's go back for a moment to the burning bush. Let's go back and remind ourselves, what did God say to Moses? God said to Moses, you want to know who I really am? Well, I am the one in the universe who exists, who has existence in and of myself. I am the one and only being in the universe who has life in in and of myself. Now, like I said before, this is what the Bible says throughout. The Bible confirms and, 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 and repeats this truth over and over again. For example, here are other examples. Um, John 1 verse 4. In him, in God, was life, and the life was the light of men. John 5 verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, remember what Paul said. He said that God alone has immortality. And, And just a verse or two before that, Paul says that God alone gives life to all things. God is the one that gives life. And this explains Genesis 2, where the Bible says that the Lord God breathed into man's nostril the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So as human beings, we are alive, but the life that we are living is not inheritably our life. The life that we are living was breathed into us. It is a gift. It's a gift from from the one who has life in himself, Almighty God. It's a gift. This is not our life that we're living out. This is a life that God gave us as a gift. Now, as human beings, we are dependent on God for every moment of our existence. Every breath that we take is at the pleasure of God. Every ounce of life that we live is at the pleasure of God. The point that I want you to get is that there is an utter dependence in all of this that that you and I must grasp if we're going to relate properly to the God of the universe. And guess what? Conversely, it is our failure to grasp this dependency that lies at the heart of all sin in the universe, all sin in the world, and and all sin in our life. I think of Lucifer. Do you remember the angel before he became Satan? The Bible says, Isaiah 14, that at some point Lucifer, as an angel, said verses 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
In other words, here we have this angel Lucifer who says, I will act, God, independently of you. I'm going to run my own destiny. And what did God say to Lucifer in this chapter? God said to him, hey, listen, you have sinned. This is the first sin in the universe. Adam didn't commit the first sin in the universe. Lucifer did. But Adam walked in his footstep. Do you remember in the garden, what did Adam do? You say, oh yeah, I remember what, what he did. He ate an apple. Well, first of all, we don't really know that it was an apple. And, and second of all, that wasn't really the problem, was it? He could have eaten a peach or a pear or passion fruit. That was not the problem. The problem was that Adam made up his mind that he was going to live independently from God. He was going to be the captain of his own faith. And, and he brought a curse on the entire human race because of that. Lucifer and Adam made the same mistake and decided to act as independent beings instead of acting like the dependent beings that they were. They rejected God's preeminence over their lives in favor of their own preeminence over their life. Sin may have many outworkings, but there is one essence to sin. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to, here it is, to his own way. There, in a nutshell, is the essence of all human sin. The essence of sin is when any created being decides to take over and sit on the throne of their own life and, and, and to declare, I am going my way. There you go. That is sin. May I say that if you are here today and you have not trusted Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior, let me say that this is very important for you to understand and, and to think about. The first step that any person ever takes towards God comes when that person realizes that they are a usurper, that they are sitting on a stolen throne. You see, God made every one of us, and God breathes into every one of us the breath of life every second of every day, and God considers the throne of our life to belong to Him because of that. Not us. It's not our throne. It's His throne. We are the dependent beings, and when we finally realize that, when we, when we become willing to abdicate that throne and, and be willing to give it back to God, um, who it belongs to, and, and use the blood of Christ to, to be able to come to God and, and to do that, that's when people begin to be ready to do business with God. If you're here and, and you've never trusted Christ, I want you to listen to me. This is why all of the religious activity and, and all the presents that you're trying to give to God are not going to work. God doesn't want your presence. He wants his throne back, the one that you usurped, the one in your life that belongs to him and to him alone. And it is only when we become ready to give the throne of our life back to God that we're ready to come to Christ and, and do business with God. I love the author A.W. Tozer. This is what he said, and I quote, The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his office. 
divide his offices, meaning Lord and Savior. You can't believe in half a Christ. He goes on to say this, and I quote, We must accept Christ for what he is. He's the Savior who's risen, but he's also the Lord who is King of kings and Lord of lords. If you're here today, and, and if you're tired of running your own life, you know, sooner or later, you've got to get tired from running your own life because none of us can do a very good job at it. I'm here to tell you that someone else is offering to run your life, and he will do a perfect job doing it. He will make, he will make your life to be something that is worth waking up in the morning for. I hope that you will think about advocating the throne of your life. It will be the best decision that you will ever make, getting off the throne of your life and giving it to the Lord Jesus. You know, one time I was driving in the United States and I saw this uh, bumper sticker on a car in front of me. It said, God is my co-pilot. Now, um, I kind of looked at this sticker and thought about it and I said to myself, you know what? I actually think that the bumper sticker should say, I am out of the cockpit altogether, <laughs> you know, because that is really what God is looking for. He doesn't want you in the left seat or in the right seat or, 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 or in the back seat. He wants you out of the cockpit altogether, and he will take it from there. Let me go on and say that, that if you're here today and you've already trusted Christ, this is still very applicable to us because the lordship of Christ is not only an issue for non-believers. The lordship of Jesus as a follower of Christ is the very linchpin of our Christian life. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, as a living sacrifice, and God is not asking you and me to kill ourselves, literally. It's a living sacrifice. He's asking us to be as dead and as the sacrifice was when they slit its throat, and on the altar in the temple, as dead as that when it comes to running our own lives. And, and instead, he wants us to let God do it. And you know, this is how the Lord Jesus modeled for us, and that's how he lived and while he were here on earth. He lived under the lordship of God when he was here on earth. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 8, 28, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught. John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus said at the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but yours be done. Here the Lord Jesus, when he was living right here on earth, he was a man living under the authority of God and in the authority of his written word. He didn't run his own life. Even though he is the second person of the Godhead, he didn't run his own life. You know, this is exactly how he tells us to live. A.W. Tozer, again, you know I love him, he said, 
A man is willing to share himself and sometimes even sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. Very interesting, huh? Matthew 28, verse 19 says, right, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make church members of all nations. No, wait a second. Go therefore and make professing Christians of all nations. Nope. Go therefore and make churchgoers of all nations. Nope. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And you know what sets a disciple apart from a churchgoer or a church member or from a professing Christian? I will tell you what it is. A disciple is a person who has dethroned himself. A disciple is a person who has dethroned herself. A disciple is a person who has restored the throne of their life to its rightful owner. A disciple is a person for whom submission to God is not just a buzzword. A disciple is a person for whom obedience to God is not just a buzz phrase. But, but these two words, these two phrases, and submission to God and, and obedience to God, these form the very essence of how a disciple lives. A disciple understands that they don't live the way that they want to live. That, that they don't live the way that they feel like living. That they don't live like, like their friends tell them to live. They live the way God tells them to live in the written word of God. The authority for their lives is not what they want or what they feel like or, or what their friends tell them to do. It's what God tells them in the word of God. Period, exclamation point, end of discussion. That is a disciple. Now, do we always get it right? No. Do we sometimes fall short? Yes. But you know what? We never lower the bar. If you're a disciple, you come to God and, and you confess that you're wrong, but, but you don't change the bar. The bar is the written word of God as the authority for life. That is how you live. And you know, if you're going to reach this community, if you're going to reach um, this, this city and, and this state for, for Jesus, if you're going to reach um, this country for Jesus, if you're going to reach the world for Christ, I'm here to tell you something. This is not going to happen with just some churchgoers. Nope. It's, it's not going to happen with just some professing Christians. Nope. It is not going to happen because a part, of, a part of church members decide to do this. Only a bunch of disciples can God use to reach a country and a people for Christ. You look in the Bible at, at the early church. They weren't just church members and church goers and just professing Christians. No, they were disciples. They were disciples and that's what we must be. Being a disciple is an all-or-nothing deal. One of the heroes of, of our faith, um, a great, the great missionary Hudson Taylor, a great missionary to China, this is what he said. I love what he said. He said this. He said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I love that. I don't know how you say it any simpler than that. And in my life, and in your life, Jesus is either Lord of all 
or is not Lord at all. So in closing, let me just ask you, I, I need to ask you this. You know, when it comes to your sex life, when it comes to the movies that you watch, to the things that you read, to the websites that you visit, how you love your wife, how you love your husband, how you treat your children, or how you honor your parents, who is on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? When it comes to how you serve your boss or, or how you speak to your fellow men or, or how you forgive those who hurt you or how you handle money or how you keep your word or how you seek to live with integrity in every part of your life, who is preeminent in your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? It can't be both. It can't be both. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Can't be both. You can't have half a Christ. He's Lord or he's not. So who is he in your life? I can't answer that question for you, but I can tell you that the answer to this question is the deciding factor if you're a disciple or not. Really, it's, it's the deci deciding factor, I believe, in many cases, even if you are a follower, a true follower of Christ or not. This idea that, that, that you can believe in Jesus as, as your Savior and then reject Him as Lord and, and go and live your life any way that you want to live, well, I'm sorry, but that's not a biblical concept. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true. It's very true that we grow in our surrender to his lordship over the years. But you know what? We never start out by saying, I am wonderfully happy as my savior, and I will make up my mind later if he's my lord or not. That's not how it works. No, sorry, that's not how it works. God doesn't take people on that basis. If that is the basis on which you came, I think there is serious reasons to examine whether you really belong to Christ because he doesn't take people on that basis. I want to take some time this morning to give you an opportunity to answer this question. Who is really on the throne of your life? You know, if you have usurped some of the throne um, of your life as a follower of Christ, if, if you're kind of living under your own authority in this area or, or in that area, I have a challenge for you. We need to make him Lord of everything, the whole thing. I can't do that for you. I can only do that for me. So, so I'm challenging you. You want to be a disciple? Well, this is how a disciple lives. And these are the people's lives that God blesses and, and that God honors. And, and I want him to honor your life. I want him to bless your life. And I'm telling you how to do it. I hope that you will listen. Not to me, but, but I hope that you will listen to him. So let's pray together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you a moment sitting right there where you are. If you need to do business with God, this is it. This is your moment. If there are things that popped on your radar screen when I began talking about who really is preeminent in your life, things you know that Jesus, you, you haven't made him Lord over your life, I want to challenge you. Do that as, as, as you sit here to get off the throne that you don't belong on. If you stay on it, you will only hurt yourself and everyone around you. Get off. Put the person on the throne that it rightly belongs to, the Lord Jesus. 
So here's your moment. If you need to talk to God, do it right now. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being the omnipotent, the eternal, the holy, the righteous, the faithful, the merciful, gracious and loving and preeminent God of this universe. Lord, really, um, I think that there is really no choice on who needs to rule our life. It's, it's a no-brainer. But Lord, we are so human, and, and sin is such an endemic part of our flesh. Lord, that sometimes, you know, even without even trying, we, we kind of push you off the throne and we take over. So Lord, I pray that, that you would forgive us. Forgive us, Father. And, and give us the heart and the lifestyle of, of, of a disciple who puts you on the throne and, and keeps you there. Lord, we do fall short of what you ask us every day. But Lord, help us never to change the understanding of where the authority for our life lies. Help us never dilute that. May you be Lord. May you be preeminent over every part of our life. And, and if there are things that we need to go change in order to restore you to the throne, then, Lord Jesus, give us the courage, give us the strength to change it by your grace. Lord, help us to get to know you so well that we understand your ways. Help us to get to know you so well that, that we fear you. Help us to get to know you so well to the degree that we won't lay hands on the ark, that we won't touch the throne. It's yours. Change our lives because we were here today and, and, and we were here and listening and hearing your word. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said? Amen.